In my series on marriage, I have reached a point where I'm dealing with myths, errors that we commonly believe about marriage that we need to eradicate, take away from our minds. The first one was the importance of romantic love to make a marriage work. It's not very important, which is contrary to the myth that it is most important. And the corresponding fact that if you don't have it, you've lost it, you've got a rotten marriage, and it's going to be terrible for the rest of your lives. The feelings and bowels of love can be increased through proper action. We dealt with that myth. We dealt with the myth of compatibility, that if you don't marry someone you're compatible with, your marriage is destined to failure. And that isn't true. In fact, we realize that usually opposites attract in marriage, and that the only compatibility God looks for is our both parties in the Lord. The third myth was that marriage is designed for families, that the reason a a man and a woman get together is to create a family. That isn't the primary means. The primary means is for companionship, and that primarily for the man. Marriage was made for the man. The fourth myth was that marriage is a holy and spiritual union that has eternal ramifications, can never be dissolved. And we showed the error of that position, that it's not so much a spiritual union as it is a practical, working, day-in, day-out relationship between a man and a woman, whereby they agree to come together in this relationship of companionship and use the marriage bed, one with another and no one else. Myth five was that if my partner will change, I'll do better. And we realized last Sunday evening that if you wouldn't do better for the Lord himself, you wouldn't do better if your partner all of a sudden had a change. The sixth myth was that it's too late. My problems are so severe, so great. We have developed patterns of behavior that are so well established, we'll never be able to maximize our marriage. Now, a Christian should never say anything like that because a Christian is supposed to be a man filled with hope. We don't have a hopeless religion, and you're not in a hopeless marriage. If you both love the Lord God and you believe the Bible has the answers to your practical problems, there is hope for a marriage that may not appear very hopeful today. There is hope, and that was myth number six. Tonight we want to take up myth number seven, an error that's commonly made among Christians because this one is taken from the Word of God as to how to resolve marriage problems. When a Christian man and a Christian woman are experiencing problems in their marriage and they have misunderstood this particular text of Scripture, they will say, it may be taught, we need to separate for a while to work out our problems. That is a myth. You don't work problems out, brethren, by separating. You work problems out by confronting and staying together. Can anyone give me the passage of Scripture that is abused to support Christian men and women separating from one another when they have marital problems. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Let's look at it. Verse 10, we're getting very precise. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I've actually had this one pushed at me by members of this congregation who wanted to separate 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I have a word-by-word outline on this chapter that I'll not give you this evening. 
It would take a while. But anyway, verses 1 through 9 deal with one main subject, and that is to marry or not to marry, and why marry. The Corinthians had written, since we've been converted, and now we're Christians, and we've been saved from our pagan religion, should we ignore marriage or should we marry? Verses 1 through 9 deal with that subject. If you cannot contain, it's better to marry. If you can contain, given the situation in Corinth, it was okay to remain single. In fact, Paul said, I would that all men were even as myself. In verses 10 and 11, and if you don't have lines drawn in your Bible, making these differences, I guarantee you, you will end up in severe difficulties. There is a difference between verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, Paul is speaking by permission. He tells us that in verse 6. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. His general overview of marriage for the Corinthians was something he was speaking by permission because he was allowing for a difficult, unusual, extraordinary case. The ordinary commandment of God is for a man to seek a wife. But he was allowing greater liberty not to do that in this chapter than elsewhere for the present distress that we find described later. But in verses 10 and 11, he speaks by commandment and he speaks in agreement with the Lord Jesus Christ regarding a particular classification of persons. In verses 10 and 11, he is dealing with marriages where both parties have been converted to Christianity and are members of the church. In verses 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and so on, Paul is dealing with a subject Jesus Christ never dealt with, and that is mixed marriages. That is where one party, maybe the husband, maybe the wife, has been converted to Christianity as a member of the church that Paul is addressing, but their spouse is not. If you run verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 together, you will create a mess. And there's some very significant differences between those verses. The world speaks of separating for a while to work out our problems. Ever heard anyone say that? You've, you've seen two people separate. I'm separated from my wife. Well, why'd you do that? Well, we're working out our problems. Well, now, wait a minute. How do you work out your problems separated from your wife? If I was to separate from my wife, I'd start thinking about other women. I wouldn't be so inclined to work out my problems with her. If I separated from my wife, I might very well lose some of my ambition to make things work with her. You say, but doesn't the Bible say absence makes the heart grow fonder? <laughs> Who did I catch on that one? The Bible doesn't say that, but you've heard it said. You know, Jesus one time said, you have heard it said by them of old time. And a lot of men have said a lot of things. If absence makes the heart grow fonder, brethren, the best kind of honeymoon is to take alone. If absence makes the heart grow fonder, we ought to frequently leave our wives and separate for a while, stay at a hotel, get one of these weekly apartments and stay away for a couple of weeks. Parents ought to leave their kids for a while in order to promote their love for their children. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Precious words, but it's a bunch of fodder. 
Separation usually has the opposite effect. Once you break down that daily existence with each other, where if you're together because you're serving God and wanting to fear Him and love that woman because God told you to do it and you want to be with that man and submit to Him and serve Him because God told you to do it, to separate is to break down that obedience to God's Word as I'm going to show you from this passage. Here's how the passage is abused. Let's read verses 10 and 11. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, but, here's the person who really wants to get something out of these two verses. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And let, the husband, let not the husband put away his wife. They jump on that 11th verse, but and if she departs, see, God is giving permission for couples to separate one from another as long as they don't go and get married to someone else so that they can keep the doors of reconciliation open. God's giving them permission to do that. And because right now we're having some struggles at home, we've got some problems, we ought to separate and try to work these problems out. They take the world's philosophy, justify the separation with the Word of God. Now let's look at these verses. The first thing I believe I can probably help at least 20 people in this congregation is why did Paul say in verse 12, to the rest speak I, not the Lord. And in verse 10, he said, unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Why in verse 10 did Paul say, I and the Lord are teaching the same thing and in verse 12, he said, I'm teaching something the Lord didn't teach. People have wondered about that. You know what is a common, very foolish assumption about those statements? Two verses are inspired and the rest are not. When Paul says, I speak this by permission, it's not inspired. Paul just decided to add in his own little ideas on marriage. When he said in verse 12, to the rest speak I, not the Lord, some assume that that Paul isn't inspired there. Paul's inspired. Jesus Christ just never taught. Our Lord Christ never taught on what Paul deals with in verses 12 and 13. Now notice verse 12, but to the rest. You know what that means? He's covering two groups of marriages, two categories of marriages in these verses. Verse 12 is the dividing point to the rest. That means there was another category that went before verse 12. And since there were only two verses dealing with marriage before verse 12, it must be verses 10 and 11. To the rest. Then he defines the rest. What are the rest? If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, verse 12. Verse 13, the woman which hath an husband that believeth not. Mixed marriages. Paul said, I'm going to speak to the rest, not the Lord. The Lord didn't address mixed marriages. Do you know why Jesus Christ didn't address mixed marriages? He never met one. Could a Jew go marry a Gentile? Not unless they wanted to end their lives quickly. That was a, a prohibition of the law of Moses for Jews to marry those that were not of the Jewish religion. It could be a Gentile that had been converted circumcised and made part of that nation. For instance, think of some examples. Ruth, Rahab, and others. 
that made themselves part of the nation by marriage and by conversion. But Jesus didn't deal with mixed marriages. Jesus Christ dealt with marriages of the Jewish faith when he addressed his disciples, when he addressed the Pharisees, when he addressed the Jewish nation at large. So let's come back to verses 10 and 11. And when, he, when the apostle writes, and unto the married, what married category is he referring to? Both converted parties, both church members. Verses 12 and following are mixed marriages where one party is converted and the other is not. In verses 10 and 11, he's addressing the married where both parties would be hearing him. And he says, And unto the married I command. We are going to find in this verse a commandment that the Apostle Paul gives. Is a commandment something that we ought to pull out of the Word of God and twist it, modify it, and compromise it? Or is a commandment something that God has stated and we had better beware of ever adding to it or taking away from it? And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. He's adding all the force he can to his commandment. Not only am I making this commandment, but our Lord has already made this commandment. Let's find where our Lord did that. Most of you know. But look at Matthew chapter 5. You might want to write some cross-references there beside the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 7.10, you'd write Matthew 5.32. You'd write Matthew 19, 3 through 9. You'd write Mark 10, 2 through 12. And you'd write Luke 16 and verse 18. In those four places, our Lord, Jesus Christ himself, addressed the subject of marriage when it involved two partners that believed in the God of heaven and were subject to the same set of laws, and that is the law of God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, Jesus said, But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. What subject is under consideration in Matthew 5, 32? It's a seven-letter word. It begins with D. It ends with E. What subject is it? Divorce. How is divorce defined in the New Testament as it is in this verse? Putting away his wife. Putting away his wife. That whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. How does a man, by divorcing his wife, because they're incompatible, cause his wife to commit adultery? Because of what 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, Nevertheless, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. He puts her in a condition where she desires the presence and the relationship with a man where she's going to be under an unnecessary burden to try to maintain. That's how. Let's come back. We don't need to look at the other passages. I hope you might have written them down. I'll give them to you again. Mark, I mean Matthew 5 and verse 32. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 9. Mark 10, verses 2 through 12, and Luke 16 and verse 18. I would like to read Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 3. We're not going to deal with divorce in 
remarriage tonight, but I'm, we're going to deal with separation, which God does not justify or allow. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 3. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? That's rather liberal divorce laws. Put away your wife for every cause. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Get those words, if you can't tell by my emphasis. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, Except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now in this case, if you divorce a woman, put her away, for a cause other than fornication, you yourself will end up committing adultery. And anyone who marries that woman that's put away will commit adultery. So in those two passages, we have all participants in a marriage, committing adultery. The woman, anyone that marries the woman, and the man that put her away for an ungodly reason. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. They were in the red writing, in your red letter editions, weren't they? Let's come back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It doesn't take just an ignoramus to be an heir on these verses. There's good commentators. I mean, they're good in some places that are sure not good in this place because they don't understand the rest. The rest. What does the rest mean? I'm dealing with two categories of marriages and one category is mixed. Now, we could take the position that verses 10 and 11 are dealing with both parties are unconverted. Did Paul ever address unconverted people? He's writing to the saints that are at Corinth. So he's dealing with both parties in the church. Jesus Christ dealt with the same group. 1 Corinthians 7.10, And unto the married I command, Yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Paul says, That's my command. But he also said, Who else commanded the same thing? Someone may say, but so far you've read just about the man putting away his wife. What about the woman putting away her husband? Did Jesus ever teach that? Mark 10, verse 12, I'll read it to you. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. There it is. You've got to, when you read about divorce, especially from the Savior's lips, you need to take all four passages and put them together or you'll end up slightly confused. Sometimes he's, he mentions the exception of fornication, sometimes he doesn't. If you limited yourself to Mark and Luke, you'd end up with no divorce ever for any cause. If you read Matthew, you'd find fornication. If you'd read Mark, you'd find that women put away husbands too. 1 Corinthians 7.10 Let not the wife depart from her husband. What is that? 
something by permission, an idea, a recommendation, or a commandment? A commandment. Who spoke it? The Lord and Paul. Let not the wife depart from her husband. Jesus said that in marriage, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. What does separation do? It puts a marriage asunder. Jesus taught that divorce causes the other party to commit adultery. How does that happen? How does a divorce cause the so-called innocent party to commit adultery? By being placed under the burden of not having that marital relationship for their marital satisfaction. What if you separate? What are you doing? Causing the other party to commit adultery. If marriage is a covenant, and do we believe it's a covenant, or do we need to look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14, Job 31 and verse 1? Is marriage a covenant? What are those that propose allowing a separation? Covenant breakers. You know, most of you said, till death do us part, not till separation recommended by the marriage counselor. If denying due benevolence contained in verses 3 and 4 and 5, if denying due benevolence to your marital partner is defrauding them, what are those guilty of that justify separation? Defrauding and that a brother. Defrauding a brother. Strictly condemned in the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul plainly says, let not a wife depart from her husband. Now, how do men hit this verse and teach let the wife depart from her husband? Circle that word not. What? That's sort of like the Garden of Eden, isn't it? In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The devil said thou shalt not surely die. I guess some people have problems with the word not. Paul said, let not the wife depart from her husband. And he said, Jesus taught the same thing. Do you know what that proves and what that shows? There is no such thing as separation in the word of God. There's either marriage or there's divorce. There is no such thing as separation. It's either marriage or you've broken the marriage. And either you've broken it in a godly way or you've broken it in an ungodly way. But there is no such thing as a period of separation that we can allow for you two to work out your problems. That's not how you work out problems. Someone will say, but verse 10 doesn't end with a period. And you always point that out. What does verse 11 have to say? Verse 11 says, but and if she depart. Okay, we've got a rebellious woman. She doesn't want to submit to her husband. So she separates from her husband and tries to use, she may try to use 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 as her excuse. But she violates the commandment of the Lord. She violates the commandment of Paul. She separates from her husband. I can't put up with this anymore. We're just incompatible, and this marriage is too much of a burden for me. We're going to go our separate ways. And she's a member of the church. She's a Christian. She's professed the gospel of Christ. She's been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. But and if she depart, Paul says, of such a woman, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. If a woman goes ahead 
and breaks the commandment, let not a wife put away her husband, if she does that. Paul is warning here, if you go ahead and commit that first sin, if you break that commandment, make sure or try your best not to break the next level of transgression. The next level of transgression would be to go marry another. So far you haven't committed adultery. If you marry another, now what sin have you committed? Adultery. But even more important than that is this. If you go and marry another, what is now impossible? Reconciliation. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. There is one thing that's an abomination to God. And again, it's interesting, but in the day we live, I guess it's not. In my short ministry, I've already run into this. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Divorced parties who have been married to others who are now divorced the second time, wondering if they should get back with their first partner. I've hit that twice in four short years where people have asked me, what, does the word, what should I do? Well, I thank God that I've got a manual for pastoral counseling and I don't have to sit around and wonder what would work well for this young man or this woman. Deuteronomy 24, beginning at verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. This is the Mosaic rules for divorce. Verse 2, And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. Remarriage is definitely allowed for a scriptural divorce. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. I don't, I'm not dealing with this passage at length this evening. That's another topic. The point I want you to get is this. Married once, divorced, and married to another, if that second spouse for a woman, that second husband, was either to divorce her or to die, she could not return to that first one because she's been defiled. And it's rather simple if you understand the Old Testament to know what that defilement is. It's moving back and forth between men. God will not allow a woman to have a man again after another man. She's defiled. And he, he calls that an abomination. And that was not to take place in Israel. Jeremiah chapter 3, the first verse, deals with the same point that what an abomination occurs in a land when you allow women to do that. Now back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A woman separates from her husband. One of you couples just finally, I mean, you're fighting. He's not treating you well. You're unhappy. The pressure's too great. You say, I'm separating for a while. Well, you've broken the commandment of Christ. You've broken the commandment of Paul. Don't go and marry another. 
if you're going to go that far, at least don't go marry another. Because if you go marry another, then you cannot be reconciled to your spouse. Because that would be an abomination. Either remain unmarried or get reconciled. And obviously reconciliation. Either remain unmarried or get reconciled. If you remain unmarried, you have not committed adultery. And you've not placed you in, yourself in a situation where you would never be able to put that original marriage back together. In light of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, which would be a gross abomination in the sight of God. Marriage to a second party rules out reconciliation to that first party. You know, if you did separate for a while, that can be overcome and covered and the two of you can be back together again. The children might never know it. The children might forget about it. and You can have a marriage restored. But if you go marry another, you'll never put it back together again. You've created a mess. And here is one of the places in the Word of God where Paul gets practical. And the Lord gets practical. By if you commit the first sin because the pressure of marriage is too great for you, then don't go and get yourself involved where you'd never be able to reconcile to that first marriage and that first partner. What if two of you were to have a fight and the husband walked out and went and spent a night in a, in a hotel or two nights in a hotel and went to work from the hotel? If it was private, it could be covered, just like any other sin. What if it was public? What if the church found out publicly that one of you had separated from your spouse and was not living with them, intentionally left them, would we exclude for that offense? Yes, indeed. Covenant breaking, defrauding, violating the commandment of God, definitely we would separate. Could that person, thus separated from, correct the situation? Could they be restored as quickly as a year? brought back into the congregation. If they repented of their wickedness and they reconciled, obviously there'd have to be a year of reconciliation before they were brought back in. Now what if that person separated and went and married someone else? Could that marriage ever be put back together again? Could those children ever be put back together again in their family as they once had it? You have created a situation not a state of adultery that you can never get out of. But you've created a situation that creates practical dilemmas you can never undo. Because once you've done that, even if the second spouse was to die, you cannot be reconciled. And you have destroyed a family without hope. You know, I, my message so far has been one of hope. You do that, there is no hope. Because it's now gone too far to be reconciled to that original party. These two verses are used for Christians to justify separating to work out our problems. God doesn't know of separation except divorce, and He only knows of divorce that He allows on two grounds. That's desertion and adultery. And if you've got divorce on those grounds, you're free to be married to another. But there is no such thing as separation. And as far as the husband's concerned, Paul simply says, and let not the husband put away his wife. That's the same language as Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. We're talking about divorce. That's important. 
there isn't some subject in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11 that's called separation that's like a halfway house between marriage and divorce. Yeah, that's how it's often looked at. There is no such thing in the Word of God. Either you're married and you're fulfilling the obligations of married, or you've put away your wife, or you've left your husband. And it's the same thing as divorce. The Bible tells us that when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves unto his wife, he's to what? Cleave unto his wife. And they twain are to be one flesh. And you don't go around splitting that up. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Any man who uses this text to put asunder a marital relationship without the grounds of fornication or desertion has put asunder what God put together and God said, let not the wife depart from her husband. Myth number seven. If you've got a problem in your marriage, separation is not the solution for it. If you've got a problem in your marriage, confrontation and resolution are more apt words to describe what you're supposed to be doing, not separating. But if anyone is foolish enough to separate, make sure you do not remarry because that gives you the time, which hopefully over time and prayer and labor and effort by the rest of this congregation, we'd have you reconciled. But if you run off, and commit adultery with some other party, not only do you put yourself in an irreconcilable situation, but the original party is now free to be married. You've created a mess. And the apostle is just warning, if you're going to be stupid enough to sin the first time, don't be stupid enough to sin the second time. Keep yourself from that practical dilemma you'd put yourself in of being unable to put it back together in the congregation. Be a mess. It'd be a mess. Myth number eight. Someone will say when confronted about their marriage, yes, we have our little problems, but our little problems can be cured with a little time. All we need is a little time and we'll work our problems out. That's a myth. Time doesn't solve problems. Problems buried, which is what anyone's planning on doing that says we need time. Problems buried will seethe and they'll grow in proportion and severity. They will not heal. Time does not heal wounds that haven't been resolved. Time can heal wounds that are resolved. But if they're wounds that are resolved, they're no longer problems. So don't tell me we're going to solve our problems with a little time. I've heard that one before. Notice how the Bible warns of this. You're at 1 Corinthians 7. Look at chapter 5 and verse 6. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? I want you to get from this verse that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. And he goes on to describe the way you keep a lump pure is to make sure there's no leaven in it. You don't give the leaven any time. Because if you give leaven time, what happens to the lump? It's permeated with the leaven. Now the scripture's warning us there. This passage, and you're well familiar with it, is describing the leaven of malice and wickedness, the leaven of sin that permeates a church. Don't let it have any time because it will ruin the entire church. Look at Galatians chapter 5. 
Verse 9, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Speaking of false doctrine in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 9, a little problem can ruin the thing that it's related to given time. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Paul has told Timothy in verse 16 to shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Verse 17, And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. A canker, if you look up the definition of that word, is a word used for cancer and gangrene. We sometimes call certain sores in our mouths canker sores, but this is to describe gangrene and cancer. That is the primary definition of the word. What do you know or what have you read about gangrene? If you were out with me and we were marooned in some place where we were not receiving help and we didn't have immediate prospects for help, and I got gangrene in my right foot and you had an axe, what would you do for me? You'd cut off my foot. Why? To save the body, because if you don't, it will spread. It'll move right up those legs and consume the body. And Paul's saying that here of the false teachings of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Their word will eat as doth the canker. It just keeps eating more and more and more until it's consumed everything that it's, where it's allowed to exist. Look at Hebrews 12 and verse 15. These ought to be familiar words. We just studied them about four weeks ago. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. The apostle warns, Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Now, have you ever seen a root spring up? Roots live in the ground, but shoots spring up from those roots. If you allow a root of bitterness to exist, it will blossom into a tree of bitterness. It will grow until it consumes the thing or the place where it's growing. And Paul warns, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. The point I want to get from all these verses is this. Sin and problems are like leaven, they're like cancer, and they're like roots. I remember my lawn the lawn our family had as a boy, always in the summer, it'd be, it'd be yellow. You know, my dad tried his best to have a nice green lawn with the limited time he had for lawn care, but it would be yellow. Dandelions everywhere. And so my brother and I would hear that dad was frustrated with all the dandelions in the lawn because the neighbor didn't have any dandelions. You know, they're the ones that use feed and weed all the time. My dad didn't use feed and weed. He thought that was a waste of money. Well, my brother and I would hear that and we'd go out and pick dandelions. Do you know how long dandelions stay down when you pick off the tops? About two days. And all, all that's happened is two boys have become very yellow from picking all the dandelions. Well, my father, he has some ingenuity. He built this little tool. He used to teach wood and metal shop at the local high school to help support himself there at that church. A little tool by which we could go around in the yard stick it under the dandelion and pop out the roots. And we could cure dandelions without weed and feed. And he paid me a penny per dandelion. One year, I earned my way to summer camp, $15. Do you know how many dandelions that was? 
1,500. There was a pile out back behind the house about that high. If you don't get the root, you haven't solved the problem. It will pop up. I've seen dandelions buckle two inches of asphalt. We had an asphalt parking lot at that church, and there near the edge, boom. The asphalt splits, and up comes one of those ugly yellow flowers, a dandelion. It'll break asphalt. Incredible. You didn't get rid of the roots. God compares sin to leaven in bread, cancer in a body, and a root in a yard. If you don't get rid of it, it's going to cause problems. And then you hear someone say, just give us a little time. Do you know what a little time will do with a dandelion root? It'll pop asphalt. Do you know what a little time will do to some dough that's sitting out in heat or warmth? It'll rise as the leaven permeates that lump of bread. Do you know what cancer will do with a little time? It'll kill you. Time doesn't solve problems, brethren. Time makes problems worse because it allows them to flourish and grow and increase and consume eventually. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. You know, there were some, some troubling the Galatians about their doctrine. And they, didn't, they had some unrest in this church. It wasn't filled with brotherly love. And Paul said of them in verse 15, If ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. If there's a church with little problems, little problems of a little biting, if ye bite and devour one another, if you're picking, and if you've got enmity between you and a brother, and it's biting at the biting stage, beware, the apostle warns us. Take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. You don't say, I don't say a little time will take care of problems. It won't. It'll make problems worse. Those little problems will grow. Sin is deceitful. Paul warned in Hebrews chapter 3 that we ought to exhort one another daily, lest any man be hardened through...